1: more info now whether you are a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks kemba financial credit union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs apply today at kemba.org to unlock a limited time two percent cash back on purchases and pay zero percent interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from kemba you deserve a card that works for you restrictions apply offer ends June 30th. 30th, 2024.
3: Today's quote is from uh, British author Diana Hardy. She said, it only takes one voice at the right pitch to start an avalanche. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me, Samara Bay. If you were obsessed with the podcast series, Dolly Parton's America, like I was, you have heard today's guest. Shima Oliei was the producer and reporter for the series and just won the Peabody, which is like the broadcasting award for excellence, along with the show's host and her boss, Jad Appenron. I wanted to have her on to ask all the questions about producing, and about what it was actually like to be in the room with Dolly and with Jad, who's, I mean, I think the first podcast voice I ever heard when I discovered Radio Lab while I was driving through the backwoods of Virginia in 2015 trying to find these, like, really isolated locations where we were shooting the movie Loving. Anyway, I remember hearing Radiolab and going, oh, this is podcast. <laughs> um, and I wanted to have Shima on to talk about her own voice on mic, which I was really intrigued by as I was listening to the series, as well as off as the child of immigrants, as a reporter who, you know, has to ask tough questions and who, as she talked about here, Jad relied on to speak up with a quote-unquote love shove every once in a while during extremely intense interview moments. And also, you know, as a woman in radio trying to own her own creative vision, I was so taken with the Dolly Parton series. And I mean, clearly I'm not alone. It won every award for best podcast of 2019. And, you know, I had a feeling that Shima would be full of, of wisdom and insight, but truly was blown away nonetheless. If you were in the mood for surprising and deep and Ballsy, sister. This is Shima Oliyei. Part of my experience listening to Dolly Parton's America, among the various, you know, it sort of insane universe of journeys that we were able to follow. One of them, and why I wanted to, what my like inspiration moment was to have you on this podcast, is that I felt like we were also listening to the journey of your voice on air. Oh, wow. Did you feel that? Because you were at first a, just a name. yeah. And then by the end, you were very much a part of the, you, you know, obviously the intimacy of podcast is that we have your we have these voices in our ears. And, you know, I remember I think I even like might have lightly gasped in the car driving, listening with the first time that I heard you on air and that it wasn't sort of cut around your question. It was very much like integrated in. And I was like, there she is.
4: I love your podcast because of this. And I'm like, oh, she gets it we really had a blank slate going into this. And there are so many moments. I mean, there's 400 hours of tape. So altogether it was six hours and 17 minutes (laughs) of Mm. the nine episodes, um, Mm -hmm. plus the two music episodes that we released as bonuses. But can you imagine 400 hours went to six hours? It was a very personal journey for me too. And people don't get to hear that. That was also deliberate because to me, the interesting aspect of this idea of oneness, the first idea I had was Jad's dad and Dolly felt like one person to me, viewing them. And I also have a Middle Eastern background. Mm -hmm. And when we were in the Kansas Plains with uh, Grandma Betty and Sarah Smarsh, I actually, this is three months before we got to the Tennessee mountain home. I had an emotional breakdown in the car, which is on tape where I start weeping. I'm talking with Sarah Smarsh. Grandma Betty has just shared about all the domestic abuse and violence in her in her love life and with her seven to eight husbands. And I start weeping in this car as we've visited the graveyard of her ex-husband. And we're driving through the Kansas Plains. And I start talking about my cousins and my grandma in Iran. And these are women that went through Grandma Betty's stories, like they lived Grandma Betty's life, but I was separate from them because I was in America. And when I met one of my cousins, she cried to me and said, you know, you are lucky you were there, but we suffered here. I have an accent. I can't live in America. I don't have a visa to do so. Um, So she's she'll always be seen as an other on the world stage. And so I had flashbacks of my cousin during that visit and also when I met the University of Tennessee kids mm-hmm. when they were sharing about the accent. That's, that was the first reporting trip I went on. They all just started bearing their souls. And that moment, plus that Sarah Smarsh breaking down about feeling my grandma and her village in the Kansas Plains. And then on top of that, hearing Dolly talk about Jad's dad which we never planned to use at the start, but she was kind of teasing Jad's dad about his accent in one of these (laughs) interviews, in the first interview Jad did that I wasn't there in the one where she steamrolls him and where she steamrolls (laughs) Jad a bit. um, But when I was listening, I thought, this is funny. This is a woman with a thick Southern accent teasing Mm -hmm. this Lebanese man about his accent. Mm -hmm. And I'm someone who, I grew up with parents with an accent. So this oneness of like the Middle East and the South and of people being othered that you don't expect to be othered, of friendships that form in unlikely places, I think that that was my soul the entire journey. And what you what cannot be captured, you know, which what cannot be understated, and which I have not really like expressed in any interview, is it was such a spiritual experience. like I don't want to say spiritual because it sounds so kind of poofy, you know, or whatever. But there were so many moments where Jad and I turned to each other and it was healing wounds of our childhood. It was healing wounds of of being first-generation Americans with parents from the Middle East. It was, for me, it was healing wounds of domestic violence amongst women in your family, um, of poverty, um, of all of that. Um, anyway, so I think... Naturally, that happened. I was just supposed to be the producer behind the scene. I didn't even want to talk in interviews. But Jad actually encouraged me. He said, no, be a Robert. You're like Robert (laughs) Kralich. You're (laughs) crazy. Like, you're kind of, you just say the crazy thing. Just do it. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to be serious. I want to be so serious. and I want to be taken seriously. And he said, no, just be yourself. But I did see my role as a behind-the-scenes kind of ninja. And that was my role. But then naturally, as the series evolved, my voice just entered it because my ideas were so, were, were, are everywhere in the series. My work is everywhere in the series. I think also Jad has a brilliant audio mind and he hears things as music. And I was a flute. I was the pan flute. Like I was like, I started out little, like I was not the main, I was not the piano, right? I was not the main course. Mm -hmm. That might've been actually Dolly, but like, you know, and there's a conductor and there's, it was an orchestra to make those nine episodes. But I think I was a pan flute, maybe once in a while, a saxophone or something that would come in and it would help. So if it helped the whole series, it would happen. But if it didn't help the series, those parts were not there. What helped the series is what we put in there. I mean, in theory, this is why we should speak ever.
3: You know, it gets when we're, when, when eyes are on us, it can become, oh God, I, I better be clever. Um, but if we can always think, you know, am I opening my mouth? Am I giving myself permission to speak? Because what I say is going to be of use.
4: You know, I'm also such a self-editor. I'm very self-critical and it was an intense experience. I mean, as, as beautiful and gorgeous, it was also really intense. I mean, for two people to do something like this was insane, (laughs) People were asking uh, other people I work with, you know, oh Jad's got a team of twenty, right? And they <laughs> would tell, you know, heads of in of this industry would ha- be having lunch with my coworker, and they would say, oh Jad's got twenty doing that Dolly series, right? And my coworker would say, no, it's one this one girl, <laughs> she's not sleeping, you know. But um, but it was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I am self critical, and I do appreciate that Jad also championed me like we would, you know, when you're in a creative um, environment like that, it's like a crucible. So it's like pressure. It's gorgeous. It's like, you're making a diamond like that. We were trying so hard and we were so in there. Now, when I even hear a bit of the series, I think, wow, I was on another level, but it's also, you know, going back and forth and no, it's got to be this and got to be that. And then how do we say this? And how do we say that? And I was definitely behind the scenes too. So I was championing him. But then when I would be pulled in, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's had 20 years of experience. And so when I felt, Chad, I don't even want my voice right there, he would say, no, let it be right there. That first interview, right? It was just the foundation to create a relationship with Dolly. So, I, you know, he asked me to draft questions for her and then, but he let her kind of do her own thing. She did steamroll him, but he also let her, like it's a, it was a first meeting but he knew we would go back and that second interview we prepared for months i was on the phone with anyone who had ever written anything about dolly i was i was reading everything on her life i was trying to find things no one had found hmm. and my goal was i wanted and i told jad this and i think he did a life hacker article at that time where he says shima is a unicorn and she makes famous people cry in interviews Because I told him, I said, I want to make Dolly cry. And he said, you're crazy. We can't make her cry. Did you hear that interview? And I thought, no, we can. We can find a way. I want her to get to a real moment of something she's never told anyone. I really wanted that. And he invited me on that second interview. And we prepped. We had a four-hour trajectory of an interview. We had video. We had audio. We had a... We had... I had done massive research. And then we compiled it all. We organized it. We made it multimedia and we set the agenda. I remember we were sitting in the car. I think this is dad's car outside of this Nashville studio. And we were both nervous. Like Jad was visibly nervous. I was nervous. At that point, he'd done the first interview with Dolly and he had interviewed the class by himself, which was okay. But then the second time he brought me because the Dolly professor is a staunch feminist and thought Shima should go and told Jad and Jad uh-huh. was like, Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Jad brought me second time. And that's all the kids shared about shame. And Jad and I both connected with that because we are, we have felt other too as first generation Americans. And we were in awe of that second, of that second Knoxville trip that, and that which was my first reporting trip. Then he takes me to Dolly. We're in the car nervous as hell and almost it was a state of prayer going in and we walk up to the studio and they could see us, but we couldn't see them because the studio has like the reflective, you know, mirror windows or whatever. And I hear Dolly go, there's a girl out there.
2: <laughs>
4: Why is there a girl? Like, what is happening? And then they open. She did not know I was going to be there. We go into the studio. There's one engineer, one mic, Jad and I sitting in front of Dolly and, um, I was on a couch at first, but then I, w- yeah, anyway, we were sitting in front of Dolly, Dolly But oh, well, that's interesting. Us.
3: There was like a moment when you, when you like scooted forward from couch to
4: chair. Yeah. I started on the couch the first hour, I think I was on the couch and then we had a bathroom break and the first hour we went in, we went in hard. The first hour, the suicide was brought up, the sad ass songs was brought up, mental illness, the abuse in her family amongst women, poverty. <sighs> Then we come back and then we do another three and a half hours. And it felt like we left the planet. It was, it was so intense and it was every moment felt like you're on a high wire. It was not a relaxed interview, but it was, um, we were just trying to open doors and she cried twice in the interview. And I served at that time. I mean, I was not planning to talk at all. I knew the entire trajectory, and I really felt like I was invisible presence. I was there to make her say what she needed to say, just invisibly. It's with when I've talked to other producers. I have a friend of mine, um, Eleanor Kagan. We were describing this um, being the producer that's supporting a host. It is a very freaking cool experience that I don't think people talk about, where you are the invisible like maker of magic, but no one knows because. You cannot talk, you cannot ruin it, but you've got to make you've got to make everyone the best they can be without saying a word until it's necessary. And so there'd be a moment where there were two moments where she she would stop the question, and then I would love shove. i would I would come in, and one time was she would not go into the suicide. And I knew the story because I had done my research, Mm -hmm. which didn't make the podcast, but I know everything about it. And so I discovered exactly what had happened, what was going on. But, you know, and Jad also has to be polite and kind, Mm -hmm. kinder Mm -hmm. than me. I can be more Mm -hmm. of the bad cop because he has the personal relationship, right? And we had to get another interview. That wasn't our last interview. So what is a love shove? So the love shove is, you know, she, she answers to cut it off. And then I kind of, I tiptoe, I kind of tiptoe in in my awkward way. And I was like, and I said, um, I heard there was a gun, so I just like put it out there. And she goes, there was no gun. Did you read that? And this, I said, actually, yeah, I, I know from this and this and this. And then she says, I, you know, when I needed a gun, I'm. That's when. Oh, then that's when we we got to the Porter question, right? So there's a moment that when you push. Someone says something that might not serve that moment, but became like the opening of the Porter story. And that was next on our agenda. So we dive into the Porter story. And then with the Trump moment, that was a moment where she just stopped. She would not answer what happened at the Emmys with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda um, when they were bashing Trump and she was expected to, you know, banter with them. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't go into it too deeply. And... um That was a moment where all my research paid off because I knew, I knew all about her story about Porter and forgiveness. And I thought, oh, if she could forgive Porter, who pointedly came for her, she's going to have compassion for, she just doesn't like, she's going to have compassion for Trump. She doesn't jump on bandwagons. If you look at her, like the, even the cheesiness and the butterflies and the Dollywood, and she's in her own world. She is in her Dolly world. She is in her own sphere. She doesn't, she does not join any kind of group. And that was part of the, that was the answer to the feminist question. That was the answer to the Trump question. That was the answer to even, she could have joined me and Jad going, hey, let's, let's really unpack Porter. Like, let's really just say, come on. He was kind of a, he was mean. Come on, Dolly. You know, she wouldn't even jump with us into Mm -hmm. that question. So I think, Even with the Me Too movement, she wouldn't really even jump into that. She wouldn't, she doesn't jump into any kind of trend or group, anything like that. She totally stands as an individual. And at the end of the day, I also think that's linked to her faith, that she feels like she has her own mission on this planet. And with her faith and her, and God, or whatever you might call that spiritual um, essence, she prays every morning at 2 a.m. and then writes she's on her own train.
3: I want to talk about this moment that you're talking about where the where the energy changes in a room. Sometimes it's as obvious as like literally the person you're interviewing saying I'm not going to answer that, but yeah. sometimes it's not. It makes me think of Anna DeVere Smith who does these amazing one-woman shows where she embodies all the characters that she's interviewed. Yeah. She writes about listening for and this is sort of a Shakespeare metaphor, but you know, Shakespeare has this um da 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 iambic pentameter. Yeah. And um and that, that da-da-da-da-da-da is sort of meant to um reflect the heartbeat. And when it goes off, when it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Shakespeare used that very specifically to mean like something's really wrong with the world, like something on a on a on a you know, grand psychic level. And so what Anna DeVere Smith says is she listens for the the troche, the 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 off rhythm in the second beat. And that's her metaphor. Mm. I I don't think it's literal, but that thing of like when someone talks in a way that accidentally reveals something and you want to
4: like go in there. Okay. So this is what happened. I was, I started as the main researcher on this project. Then I go into produce, which producing means very different things in very different places. But because it was a two-person project, it meant a lot more than... You would expect, right? You were
3: clearly 19 of the 20 people that
4: (laughs) works behind the scenes. so it was, you know, I know, Jed. It was probably 10 and 10, you know, maybe sometimes 15 and five. No, no, 11 and (laughs) and no. But it was, it was a lot. When I push, he knows I can push in a way that he has to be her sturdy ship, but Mm -hmm. I can be the wave to rock it around a little bit and see what comes up. Then toward the end of that four-hour trajectory. My research became that gut. the gut feeling is not just intuition, which is very important. My master's was in psychotherapy. So a big part of my life and also my personality is if someone is suffering, I kind of want to know what's going on. This is also part of my Buddhist background is I've met thousands of young women that would tell me what their suffering was, right? So I naturally... I don't want people to be superficial with me at all, ever. It's almost kind of inappropriate. <laughs> like, I don't want small talk. Mm-hmm. I want to know what's really going on. And it's out of love. I really, I really love people. And I, I I, think that through someone sharing, everyone is healed because everyone is human and understands, right? So there's that Trump moment. She just cuts it, done. I'm not talking about it, Jad, Because she couldn't say anything. And I actually shared a story about my life in that moment. And I think Dolly was like, where the hell is this girl? What is she talking Mm. about? The silent little- She wasn't even supposed to be here. She wasn't supposed to be here. What's her name again? You know, she just- (laughs) It sounds foreign. Why did, yeah, why did Chad (laughs) bring this, Who? where'd she come from? She had no idea. And I had had my huge curly hair. (laughs) like, I look like, I was like, ah! And and I was very quiet until this moment where I just shared the story. And then she still answers in a quick way. And then I go in and say, hey, didn't you want to protect him? Like, didn't you just want to protect this person in the room? And that's when she said, yes, I wanted to say, let's pray for the president. Why don't we pray for Mr. Trump? And and I knew, I I sensed what the answer is, but I didn't know what her answer was, right? Mm -hmm. But that's because I knew about Porter. I knew about Mm -hmm. her family. I knew about her heartbreak. I knew about things that she wouldn't even share with us. And so I knew that. And so I shared a story that I felt like she would know I got it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was true. I think she goes, oh, she gets it. She's not trying to get me. She's not trying to trick me. She gets it. And when we left that interview, we were so high. Jad and I had reporters high. We could not believe the places we went. That four and a half trajectory was the foundation of the entire series. And she cried twice. So I became this kind of good luck charm. I became like the lucky rabbit's foot for Jab after that. And he said, okay, I'm taking well, her everywhere. That
3: was your goal. Like yeah. you, you achieved it way too early in your trajectory. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org
1: for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
3: Okay, we're back. Can I ask you, when you come up with questions, I, as someone relatively new to question asking in a formal sense rather than a cocktail party sense, um, I would like to say I have no idea what I'm doing. And I go back and forth between coming up with questions that I truly want to know the answer to and coming up with questions that I think will elicit the types of Answers from my um, guests that reader that readers, that listeners will need to know, but that I'm a little too like inside baseball, I already know the answer, mm-hmm. which makes me feel, you know. I wonder since obviously some of the secret to your brilliant question asking prep is prep, is just the amount of work you're doing. But I also wonder like what is that like, oh, that's a good question, or I want to know about that, but how do I ask it to get in?
4: Yeah, I think... Um so research is the first step, right? And then wanting surprise, wanting to, like, even me and you, wow, this is so meta or whatever. But no, for even sure. me and you, I mean, I'm going to enjoy this interview more if I get surprised by things I discover. Especially, I mean, I've only spoken about the Dolly series maybe five times in interviews. You know, I'm still learning how to talk about it but I even hear myself repeating things that I've said before because it feels comfortable. Dolly has done that a billion times over 50 years. Yeah. The, like She has answered the same questions a billion times. So she has these sayings that are funny, charming, genius that she just uses over and over again. And as you do research, you realize, oh, When you think she's being so spontaneous with you, she's not, she's playing you, you know?
3: Yeah. Even in
4: concert, she's playing you. And what was crazy was right before I moved to New York, I saw her in concert, the only time I've ever seen her in concert. And I heard these stories of her Tennessee mountain home. And I thought, wow, wow, wow. And then when I did research, I saw she's been saying this story for Mm -hmm. 30, 40 years. And how does she make it sound so new? So I didn't want her to do that. Yeah. I wanted to shock her. So the research helps because you find questions that have not been asked. You try not to go down the path someone else has gone, but you utilize that knowledge to lean into things because I don't know everything. So I've got to push. I think one thing that we don't talk about much, which um, Jad and I would do, is the, the structure of the questions matters. Where you start, where you head, where you go. It's not just random, random, random. Like we had almost a movie-like trajectory. We used audio. We used video. We tried to find things of her that she hadn't seen. We were hoping she hadn't seen. Do you think about structuring questions to get um,
3: like stories versus facts? Do you think in those terms at all? You know, I find like a lot of the surprise comes in when people are really trying to search themselves for how something felt or how something went down?
4: I think some of the some of the most surprising, I think some of the best, the deepest moments came from she would say something in an interview and we wouldn't understand what the hell she's talking about. <laughs> and so in that moment, we lost that moment. Like when she talks about the Appalachian murder ballads, we just it, we just glided by it in that same four and a half hour interview, mm. which was which was amazing. But we didn't catch it. And it was only in listening afterward where we went, wait, what did she say about murder ballads about the Knoxville girl? Wait, what? And then that took us down a rabbit hole and we had the opportunity to interview her again. So what you're getting um, also, I think one of the beauties of the interviews of Dolly in the series is you're getting like 15, I don't know how many hours by the end that we had, maybe 15, I don't know, but where we could go deeper and deeper and deeper and say, remember when you said this? Well, what about this? Remember when you said this? Well, what about this? So we could come at her from every angle. So I I would say we had the luxury of repetition, which helps us because we're not really just doing an interview. We're creating a documentary experience. And it sounds like that's also something that you're doing with uh, the, the other people that you
3: referenced for your next project, that it is about these longer conversations that layer.
4: Yeah. That actually came out. Yeah. 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 That came out two weeks ago. Yes. But I do think Lauren and Kiese, who were in the Flag and the Fury episode, they told me things in the last week of production that there's no way they would feel comfortable saying that in my first call with them. They knew me by that time. They trusted me. They knew I understood. They knew what I was trying to do. Even John Hawkins uh, is in that episode, and he's the cheerleader at Ole Miss from 1983 who refused to wave the Confederate flag and all hell broke loose on that campus. He's only done one in other interview ever about that, that situation because it was so painful. He was getting death threats and he was waiting for the right time. I had to talk to him for two hours before he would even agree to one interview because he wanted to know if I was a person that he could trust or if I had, if I, if I knew what I was talking about, what I thought about Mississippi, Mm -hmm. um, where's my heart. And so those things build over time that a lot of being a producer is being someone that is actually that people know that you care about them. Even people that I interview, people that have opposite opinions, you know, yeah. like don't agree. The Mississippi story I just did, people did not agree with each other, but I loved everyone I talked to and I aggr- I could see their truth in whatever they were telling me. I thought that is really true. That is a great point. But then I have to create the story based on all of these like 3000 truths because that's the reality of life. And I'm now the storyteller telling this to the best of my ability.
3: No, and I think that's part of your your genius, perhaps the unicorn-like quality of you, besides having all these different, you know, literal skill sets that you're bringing to the table, is that you very much live in and value the gray area, rather than always being like, this is the answer, this is the the truth, you know. My 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 dad had this shirt that he used to wear when I was little that at the time I thought was ridiculous. And now I'm like, ah, it is the deepest wisdom of life, which is bring me into the company of those who seek the truth and deliver me from those who have found it.
4: I mean, that's what's hard is the stories I feel like I most want to listen to right now are people that don't get to tell their truths. And Dolly couldn't either. She told the truth through her songs. The ugly shit about being a woman She does not talk about that in interviews. She laughs. She jokes about her breasts. She is fun and flirty. But when you go to her songs, she is telling you the effing truth. And so that's why we based our questions on the songs, because she was saying Mm. things in the songs she was not saying. Even in her autobiography, she's not saying that in her songs. She's saying a lot more. So it's also doing the research. We would find the places where she was saying things she was not saying anywhere else. But um, in terms of that idea of a story or, a story, I think it is a chemistry. You know, I'm really understanding this more, especially as a creative. There's so many times where I go, like, I, I, I like cross my arms and I think, why can't something be like this? Why can't we do it this way? Why isn't it like this? But being a creative is not working for a bank, a lot of it is the intangible stuff. It's really interesting because there's things that look really nice, you know, constantly we're getting offers for other projects or do this or do that. But um, the chemistry of life, the chemistry of two people talking, the chemistry of ideas, the chemistry of story building, the chemistry of the pre-interview, the chemistry of the actual interview, the chemistry of the research, like having the taste when you read something. And this is where... Jad was my cheerleader, um, especially when I was first starting and I was like very timid and I didn't want to talk. I thought I was not supposed to be talking. He he pointed out. He said, "Oh, y- you do the thing." I said, "What do you What do you mean? I do the thing?" He says, "You get random. <laughs> like you tell this story, and no, the person has no f- effing idea what you're doing. You just come out of no, you um, just associative.
3: You have an associative mind. Yeah." So when I I, you know see, I'm writing a book right now and I'm yeah. trying to figure out that I think that the I think the point of the book, which is really like meant to be practical as as well as big idea is to somehow get onto paper like the associations that just happen in my mind you know where it's yeah. not actually like a logical progression but nor do I think that's how people learn best necessarily
4: I think there's different kinds of thinking I think part of it is also language like people who speak different languages they have different loops of how they think and talk. And I also think it's partly because my parents are not native English speakers. So a lot of my thinking is associative. And I think that Jad could recognize that too. And he's like, oh, you think like me, you're an associative Mm -hmm. thinker, but I've learned how to taper it. But you also are a wild, you're not afraid of being, I'm not afraid of being vulnerable in an interview. So I'll just share the thing and the person will just get so confused (laughs) By my non sequitur, which does make sense, which does connect to something, but they're trying to follow me because I'm going to start when, when they refuse to answer the question, I then hit a ball. It's like way in the sky. And they're like, wait, what is that? Wait, what? And then I take them back to them. That's standing on home plate. It makes me think of, um,
3: you know, Alain de Botton, the, um, the British philosopher. He was on uh, this podcast um, with Elizabeth Day called How to Fail, and he said that it's so it's so like basic, but so profound. He said that the only way to truly connect with somebody is to be vulnerable, and for them to be vulnerable back to you. That's like it, you know. And and I and I also really love to think of vulnerable. You know, vulnerable means literally like showing your weakness. So the idea that there is strength and showing your weakness
4: it's equality and respect it's like i bow to you i am offering my soul and then you offer me whatever you want to offer me i have no attachment i have no judgment and i think also people feel that there's this famous quote about people people have it i'm going to change it in my own words but people have an innate bullshit detector where they know if you are sincere or not. They know if you give a shit or not. People just know. Even if they're not aware they know, in the interview tape, you can hear that they knew we weren't bullshitting. Ah, that's amazing, So yeah. the, the results we got in the tape was amazing because people knew we were not playing around and we were sincere. I was fiercely sincere. I wanted, I wanted to know what people knew. I wanted them to share whatever they needed to share. Um, including Jad's dad, including Jad, you know. um, There's also this amazing um, research out of uh,
3: University of Glasgow, I think, where they can tell in the first millisecond where somebody says hello, people have a instantaneous opinion about whether or not that person is trustworthy.
4: You know what? I love that. Um, I I mean, it sounds wrong, right? Because it sounds like you're, you're maybe judging, but people have wisdom, even if they don't, can't necessarily put it into words. Mm-hmm. We have wisdom. There is a girl. Um, it's a Buddhist girl. Uh, her name was Sunny Kim. She told me the story that in Korea, um, where like she grew up with her family, and they went through a lot of trauma as a young person. Her mother almost died three times in one year, and she said, like through that suffering and through prayer and and really uh, taking care of other people during that time what would happen is like she'd go visit someone who was struggling and she could hear by the way they would answer the door. She could hear what their life state was by the way they would unlock the door before they'd open it. I talk about this a bit because,
3: you know, obviously I'm, I'm, the voice is my jam and not just the voice in and of itself, um, as we just talked about in the mailbag episode, but really because it's so revealing. It's so revealing of, of what our as you say, our life state. And I think that there's something, I mean, this is not 100% true for everybody in every moment, but um, I think there's something about how each of us uses our voices that either reveals our life story or our state of mind, our choices, our where, what's led us to this moment, or it doesn't. And what we're hearing is the concealing. I hope, and this, <laughs>
4: this is my champ, championing women too, I hope that We can hear better because there's a lot, like think about all of the, all of the realities coming to the surface right now where people are saying it's so bad. And people that have Mm -hmm. been suffering under these realities Mm -hmm. say, no, it's always been like this, but you can't hear the voice if you weren't a victim of that voice. But if you have suffered and been marginalized and been bullied, lost, even though it was unfair If you've ever been in a situation where you were punished for something you did not do because of the the positions of power, of people in power. Well, if you think about it, people are getting a microphone right now that did not get a microphone. Yes. If you even think about who has been hosting radio shows, it has been white men, okay? So also there's a trajectory happening where people are realizing something is wrong. So they're shoving everyone into the spotlight but they didn't give any of those people the tools that they gave a whole other generation of people in privilege. So even for me, that's why it's very nerve wracking. Even as I'm coming into the forefront and my voice is being allowed to have a little bit more space, I'm very self, uh, self. um, Editing? Critical? Maybe, yeah. Self-editing and and self-critical and not I just don't think I deserve a space to talk. And many people don't even think like that. They just think, yeah, I am, I deserve to talk. You know, they, they, they've they done these studies. And actually, the Dolly Parton's America professor told me this. She's a fierce feminist and was a lesbian lawyer in the 1970s in Chicago. So she would tell me stories. This is before I even met her really on the like, phone. And this is part yeah. of the reason why she fought for me to be in the series. And she was like, Shima gets this. Bring, Chad, you should bring Shima you know, it's these invisible spaces where people just think they deserve a raise. They just think they deserve a promotion. They don't think they need to do anything to get it. They just think they deserve it. And, and, you know, there's very famous studies, very well-known studies that women will apply for jobs that only they fit a hundred percent of the criteria Of course, yep. and men will like apply for jobs where they fit 60% of the criteria. And so there is a growth spurt happening right now, but, but. It's on both sides. It's it's awkward for everyone. And so even for myself, I'm like, I don't want to... I personally don't want to sound shrill. I personally don't want to sound dumb. I personally don't want to sound like do Like, I don't know. I just want to sound like myself. But I'm also scared because getting an opportunity is so rare. It's not an everyday occurrence. So that's because of the way things are set up. Like when AOC just got up and gave that freaking speech, it's... Mm-hmm. It's it's just so great for a young woman to stand up and just piss off so many men and be like, yeah, I'm just gonna piss you off. I don't care. And I mean, she's doing it, some of it for very well, good reason. I just, I wrote, it. A,
3: I wrote a piece about this too, actually, yeah. right before she did her, um, she gave that speech. Unrelated, related just to her being her uh, about how like what is surprising about her and what is what is um, a lesson for us and for anybody listening who's who's like, you know, feeling any resonance here is that. What's so surprising about her, the reason that we don't associate her voice with power historically, leadership historically, is that she literally sounds like who she is and where she's from. Yeah. And so many of us have this sense, whether it's turning on a radio voice or turning on a politician voice, that the way to get ahead, and we might be right, is to shave off those edges of ourselves that are the most Authentically, us, the most real, and go into this generic land. And by the right, the reason I say we might be right is obviously on the way up. And then the dream is at some point we have enough power. And, you know, AOC was able to do it in this like sooner than expected way, which is partly her bravery. Yeah. To say, I have enough power to let that crap go and actually say, uh, okay, here's what I really sound like. Yeah. And I shall not apologize in the moment. I mean, what you're talking about is also this thing I'm always on the kick of and I and I absolutely have to police myself on, which is about apologizing for taking up time and space. She is okay
4: being hated. And that is such a superpower. Like that, that that's what I find the most in awe about her is she does not care if she's hated. And I think, wow, I wish I were more like that. I'm not, that's not my personality, but I'm also, I'm a different, I'm a different flavor. I'm a different instrument.
3: But in a way, I would say part of what your job was, part of the the puzzle piece that you, you know, provided in what you talked about with your, you know, dynamic with Dolly is that you were willing to say some things that were, uh, came Mm. out of left field or were not the good cop. There, you know, you have your own ways. I mean, I don't need to defend you. You could defend yourself, but you know what I mean. Like, yes. there, we we the ways in which we experiment with being brave enough to be unliked
4: is, I and think, really, really helpful. Even speaking up, as I worked with Jad, right? Like
3: speaking up, yes, in in private with Jad. I had a ab- question about how you guys agree or disagree, yeah, and,
4: and what that process is. So, if I were just thinking about Shima and my career. <laughs> I would not have spoken up about some things. I would not have said, hey, we need this. Hey. Like I just wouldn't have said it because I'm in a I love my job. I don't need to speak up. But I was I as per Dolly, I was praying a lot about the series. And I felt like it was a chance to tell talk to America. I felt like it was a chance to tell Dolly's story. I felt very personally connected to the story um, as a woman and and, and with my roots in the Middle East and all of the things that were all, all of the ideas that you hear in the, in the in the trajectory and the adventure that we go on, but I remember praying I want to open the gateway for all women through this series. And part of that is how I stand my own as a creative behind the scenes, even though I am yeah. this person's junior and they are employing me. yeah. I don't know if anyone would have listened to me if this guy didn't give me a shot. Mm -hmm. You know, like, was anyone going to give me a shot? Like, someone has to see your genius, too. Someone has to see your talent. Then you can do what you want with it. There's another part of that puzzle which I really don't want to miss out on, which is that
3: because you were doing this work on yourself, on the the why— you were speaking up in a way that wasn't just speaking up for Shima. And in fact, may have been if things had gone differently against your best interests. But you were speaking up on behalf of, and that is, I mean, I think that is part of what was so successful about this, this, you know, viral moment that that AOC created. That she, it, it was not just like, this guy said something mean to me and I would like to say that I don't want to be treated that way. It was not that at all. In fact, she spent the whole first half saying, it has nothing to do with me. Yes. And how I'm treated. It
4: has to do with a history of this. Do you know how many women were sitting at home? Like millions have seen that video now. And And so the reality is, I'm thinking, I have two thoughts when I watch that. I think this is insane that this is what's happening in Washington. Like this is taking up time during a period in the country where people are dying off and like the thousands and per, like, and we don't know how much it'll snowball to it's, it's a, it's a, it's a horrific time in American history and she has to take time to address this. But every woman at home that has ever been just spit at, like, I mean, spit at, talked for doing nothing, for just walking on the street called a, called well, whatever
3: and in I, fact it's connected now that i hear you talk about this because yes i had the same thought of like it's insane that she has to sort of like speak about this the sort of triviality of these two words got, getting getting strung together and thrown at her yeah. uh, you know among the billions that she's received why you know why but it's connected to the fact that those same women that you're talking about that were home listening to this are also the same women who have had to deal with, you know, life since, since November of 2016 and what that moment was. Okay, one more question before we take another break. Here's what I really want to know. At the top of the final episode, you get on the microphone and ask for money. <laughs> okay, It's so fucking good. And it's a it's a money ask I have never heard in my whole life. Like there's no apology in it. Oh my and god. It's so you. Like, what was that? And what how did you prepare for it? What did you think as you were going
4: on mic? It's so funny that you asked that because I find that oh I find that money ask to be a microcosm of the series, which is I did not expect to do the money ask. <laughs> like I did not. I, I And then I got asked to do it. I work for Jad's company. I don't really work for WNYC, mm-hmm. right? So
2: mm-hmm.
4: Jad said, I want you to do the money ask. And I think it was also him giving me a moment to say, hey, I produce this thing. And I was scared. I've never asked for money. And I did a very standard one in two episodes previous to that one. Mm-hmm. But I got, because I'd already done it, I was thinking, what do I want to do? How do I? So I just built something. I took, I was trying to think, how to? I was thinking about the victory lap because the last episode is a lighter one. So we're really just like, we talk about our tattoos. We talk about 200 years from now. You had also been getting feedback by that point from listeners, right? Oh, yeah. So like you,
3: it it did strike me as as a different type of ass than you might've done before this had, had like hit air.
4: Yes. It was, it was me talking directly to people that were in the series with us and like knew who we were and and we're enjoying it or hating on it, whoever. But I just, I was speaking to the listeners, you know, and it started with, I knew I had to do it. I knew I wasn't going to narrate any part of that last episode. You hear me in that last episode. Cause I asked about the tattoos with the kids, Yeah, um, with the UT. Kids. I know. And I love that. I love that when he's, when he's like, by the way, that was Shima's question, not the kid's question. <laughs> it, the best part of that is just the kid's reaction. Cause they're like, what? I thought, what? No one knows about tattoos, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. th- they were actually kind of the highlight of all of that. But, um, No,
3: and I do want to say that the the act of using their questions and then
4: putting them into Jad's mouth was like dreamy, just dreamy. After we met with the UT kids, that was another bright idea of coming back to Dolly and doing another interview with Dolly is just putting their questions in front of her. So it gave us the space to not be critical, but to be critical. Like, hey, the kids wanted to know this. The kids wanted to know, what do you think about your accent? You know? They kind of feel ashamed of it. I don't, we yeah. don't know. What, what yeah. do you think? You yeah. know. Yeah. So, we, we, to ask the things that are a little bit, but testier. to voice,
3: to, to, uh, to give voice to the students who felt yes. like so distant, you know, literally and, and yeah. probably metaphorically from Dolly, and then to have their questions be directly asked to her was like a real, I mean, that actually, now that I say it, felt like it was a real, um, crumbling of a, of a, of a, like, you know, power structure.
4: Yeah. And they were so happy too because they wanted to ask those questions, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, they were real. They were like real questions. Oh my gosh. I love those students, by the way. I still talk to some of them. They're, anyway. Brilliant, brilliant young people. Um, So the ask. Yeah, I was terrified. I asked membership services at WNYC. I actually had a meeting with them. I said, I'm very scared. And then they told me, they told me Jad's record (laughs) for how much someone gave. (laughs) This explains a lot of my relationship with Jad. They explained to me when Jad asked once, people responded with this kind of figure. And I thought, (laughs) so this is so much, I mean, this is the beauty of my religion, Jeff. It's like, we, this is like, this is the, this is the invisible like chemistry, right? Like we compete too. We try to outdo each other. I probably do it more because I'm free to do so because I have, because I am like the young kid coming up or I'm, you know, I kind of feel like I'm like the younger sister figure and I go, Hey, I want in there, you know? So we were editing the final episode. I thought, Hey, this is my last moment. I'm going to be creative. So I built the start, and then I put in the questions. I put in the moments that I knew people loved the most, you know, and then I made it, and then I sent it to Jad. And Jad was just expecting me to do a straight-up ask with no music, no nothing, no build. And then when he saw it, even though he's, like, tired, and he's like, we're wrapping the thing, he saw what I did, and then he built on it. So then he built a middle moment and then I built the final moment. So even though we would we didn't expect to do that, that was that was the genesis of the Dolly series too. Was like I would throw him more than he asked for, and then he would respond in a glo- in a generous way, and then I would push back in a generous way, and then we would get to something that was just unexpected. It was just supposed to be a straight up ask, no sound, no nothing but I took a moment and I made what I could with it with the time I had and with the feelings I was having. I also wanted it to feel like a victory lap for all the listeners with us to just go over like reminisce. And then, and to ask a very sincere question, which is, you know, public radio cannot exist without listeners. I mean, to this day, especially in this time um, of the pandemic, it's really beautiful that people are still giving even, um, even though circumstances are much tougher. So I really tried to think about people and be appreciative to the audience. Even if they didn't give, I wanted to be appreciative for everyone who had listened. So that's what I did. And as lessons go, you know, there's a lot in that. But
3: one thing that I'm hearing is that in various ways, you really gave yourself permission to bring your actual voice to that microphone. And one way you did that was to really connect with the who, you know, mm. out there. One way was to connect with... um how proud you were of what you've made at that point to just trust that it was not something you needed to sort of like if you liked this uh," you know uh, which is a trap that any of us could have fallen into Um, and then and then also you know healthy competition nothing like some uh, some I'll show you energy Um, okay we're gonna take another break and we'll be back to find out who you brought in for us
1: 2024.
3: I just feel like this could definitely be, like, um, a multi-episode series about um, you and us and our take on the world, um, yeah. yeah, which is just a different—it's a yeah. different format, what can I say? Um, okay, will you tell me who you brought in for us?
4: So I brought in Michaela Cole, who is—who <laughs> should be president, even though she's not American. <laughs> but— um, <laughs> she should be a, she should be president and she should be queen um but i brought her in because not only is her series the, the her newest series the greatest thing on this planet right now in my opinion um mm-hmm. at this moment but her business practices and the voice she's giving to them and the boldness as, at which she is expressing what is happening behind the scenes in those business practices i find to be wholly encouraging courageous and inspiring she is what I, I, she is what i want i i want to be i wish i could be things i ask for but do not get she is asking for them and getting getting them she was offered a million dollar deal with netflix she turned it down because she couldn't yeah. own the rights to yeah. her show and she just wanted like a certain percentage of the shares and they wouldn't even give her that and she just said forget you at a time when no one said no to netflix yeah I think she's awesome. Every young person I know, every woman I know is she's become the blueprint just coming up. She's not a she's not a 20 year veteran that's becoming the blueprint. She's an up and coming artist that is the blueprint. I think she's spectacular. And then her series takes on sexual assault. and I hate to even say that because I, I don't want to turn anyone off from watching it, but I may destroy you. Is so good and is saying so many things, is giving a voice to things that people have not said, and and giving you a space into places that people don't see from a vantage point of someone you never hear from or see from. And every episode, I was lucky that I watched it with a friend of mine. Um, I, I normally you binge something on your own, but I actually watched it with a friend and Every time an episode ended, she would share about what was what she what she related to, and then I would share, and then we would share about other stories we knew, and then we'd watch the next episode, and then she would share, and I would share, and so M- Michaela Cole's art was giving us a voice to share mm-hmm. her business practices and her speeches about her business practices made my coworkers they would like send me her speeches. like Because the girls girls have their own hidden community where they're pushing each other to ask for more. But all of us, a lot of us are getting said no to. <laughs> but, and, and even sometimes I'm told by other young women around me, Shima, you should ask for this, but they would never ask for that. But I'm mm-hmm. kind of the guinea pig and then I ask and then it's like, no, you can't get that. Because, you know, who are you? So I think that's happening everywhere. I don't think it's personal to me or anyone else. I do think the ideas of ownership, of artistry, of being a woman, of being the idea of sexual power, the idea of business power, all of that is encapsulated in this phenomenal human called Michaela Cole. Mm -hmm. We're going to listen to a short clip.
3: Because you said it up the way you did, I'm switching. I was trying to decide between two, but I'm going to do a little bit from her uh, McTaggart lecture. I bet you've heard this.
4: Yeah, I think so.
3: Many of us in this industry, this world, are on creaking ladders, climbing, surrounded by noise, stress, and nothing real, not even the ladder itself. It could make the future feel bleak and devoid of peace, leaving some feeling isolated to the point of suicide. I think of Anthony Bourdain, who, entered his, who ended his life on June 8th while shooting a series. I think of Alex
2: Beckett. An actor who ended his life April 12th, made a theatre run. I'd worked with him in that place, far away. Is there care
4: for anyone's mind. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. I mean, talk about what a voice is conveying. She is nothing but a humanist. Like, she sees people she hears people and she's very connected to her own, probably because of her own trauma too. she's She sees the person deeper than she sees the artist. And I think in, in realms of creativity, we forget that there is a person in front of us and the person matters more than the art. At the end of the day, the person fucking matters more than the art. And that is not part of our society. It's not how we view things. It's not how we measure them. It's why the country is as it is right now. People, it's everything else matters more than the person, the one person. We've forgotten the person for a lot of the fucking circus, whether it's in art, Hollywood, fucking politics, politics. Fame, fortune. I mean, whatever. something
3: that came up with uh, with um, Elise Hogue, uh, my previous guest, is this idea that I think about a lot about how we don't really talk about this aspect of the patriarchy, quote unquote. But you know, part of its um, magic lies in trying to dissociate our brains from our bodies. And this idea that like, if we don't have bodies, well, that's convenient. And it's also very convenient for capitalism, by the way, because then we can work 80 billion hours a week and we can skip <sighs> pee breaks and we can not go outside for lunch because who needs that? You know, work, work, work. The more you work, the more you make. I mean, if we start to think of all of that as, you know, I don't know if a lie is the right word, but as certainly a truth that serves somebody besides us, then we can start to think about oh, what 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 is it to not live
4: that way then? If you think about like the history of women, I'm like, this is so my jam. There were thousands of etiquette books for women on how to behave. And why are there thousands for women and not thousands for men? It's because you are property. If you were not picked, you die. Like, basically, that's my extreme version of it. But you are an old maid. You end up in poverty or like you're an outcast of society. You have no say in the world and so you have to learn how to harmonize in order to live to just live and this is where virginia wolf is like my f- virginia wolf is my favorite voice that you know there are audio there is audio of her but you know, <laughs> you're but like holding it's- back yeah yeah but <laughs> she is my she's my i mean I, Michaela Coles, a living person without a doubt at this moment in time without a doubt but um virginia wolf says that when She got an inheritance, I think, from her aunt. That mattered more. That money mattered more. So she could have her own room. Mm -hmm. That's why that book is called A Room of Mm -hmm. One's Own. Mm -hmm. That mattered more than getting the vote. Can you imagine? That is not what we're taught in school. Her having that money to be able to create mattered more than having the vote. Like... Think, and that's what Michaela Cole is living right now on in the realm of life and death, watching other artists feel so lost and without power, killing themselves. Like to that extent, I mean, that's that's what I love about this moment. That's what I also feel like we have so far to go. So when I got my first recording studio job, I was the only girl hired. I was the only woman on staff and I learned how to be tough. When there was a joke about sex, when there was a joke about me or my body or a woman, I, you learn how to spit back, and you feel good, and you feel like you're the one in control, and you feel cool, and you you know, you, you label feel that like power. Yes, and there was a moment where I got, I heard my real voice, and I woke up one morning and I thought, oh my god, I'm miserable. This job looks shiny, but I am miserable and I am—I have to fucking play the game. I cannot even be myself. I, I'm, I just look tough and I have to do it to survive, but I hate this job. No matter how good it looks, no matter how sexy it is that I'm recording with this artist or whatever, I hate it. And I fucking quit music at that time. And I was a second grade teacher for the next year of my life. And being with kids melted me. I thought, mm. oh, wow, I have so much. There's so much between what my soul or whatever is my inside and my outside are so estranged from each other. And it took years to collapse that. And most people live in the space between. They it's It's so difficult to collapse. It takes a lot of guts. You have to be able to when someone hurts you be able to have a dialogue with them you have to be able to if you have trauma in your family address the trauma see the people like you have to love your parents no matter what you've got to you've got to have friendships with people from all walks of life it's a process you've got to constantly push your boundaries with your voice connecting with other voices that that shit starts to heal and those the wall of the outside of what you project as you to people and what is actually happening on the inside, though that distance collapses. And as an interviewer, I am listening for the space and I am desperately trying to collapse all of it. But it takes someone to kind of be the catalyst, to be the the elixir. And art can do it, that speech Michaela did, that book Virginia Woolf wrote, that series, a podcast. (laughs) Like the reason I wanted Dolly to cry is sometimes when I'm lost, it's because I haven't cried (laughs) Like I've gotten so frozen because I'm surviving in the world and I can't feel myself anymore. And I have to get to a place where I can feel what the fuck is going on. What have I just lived through? What is happening? Because things are moving so fast. Anyway.
3: (laughs) We should probably end the episode. Shima, thank you so much for coming in. (laughs) This is fun. Thank you, Tashima, for joining me. You can find out more about her and her shows in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. I'm back to doing IG Lives every Thursday, so join me uh, tomorrow at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram, Q&A style. So feel free to ask me any questions you have. Send me DMs, comment, tell me what's going on with your voice, and um, I'm so grateful for all of you. Thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
0: Turn your passion into a career. Visit
1: trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.